Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right, we're back. Court is back. Season two is now in session. How does it feel? Honestly, it feels great to have basketball back. It feels great to be back. I feel like this is going to be a really exciting season for a lot of people to watch. There's just so much going on. And it really does feel like it's hard to predict who's going to be able to win the championship at this point. You really can't say that there's a clear-cut favorite anywhere. So um, it'll be really exciting to see it play out. I'm glad to be back. All right. Well, in that same vein, what are you most looking forward to this season? For me personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these super teams not pan out the way that people thought they would. I know that that sounds um, kind of annoying to Lakers fans and Nets fans, but the thing is, it's not the first time that we've seen something like this happen before where we have a team in the offseason load up. Like, for example, when the Lakers got Steve Nash, Dwight Howard, Kobe, Bynum, they were already projected to be the champions right from the outset. Everyone was saying the same thing with Westbrook and the Lakers and also with the Nets. And um, as it turns out, um, I think maybe some of those things may have been overstated. And we're going to see that this year, I think in particular, we're going to see a passing of the baton where a lot of older um, star type players, with the exception of players like maybe Stephen Curry and LeBron James to some extent, are really going to be passing the baton to the next generation of stars. And I really think that you're going to see a lot of players that last season may have not been star level players make that leap and take significant gains into their stardom this season. So I think we're going to see a lot of young players take that leap this year. That's interesting. I think what I'm looking forward to most follows a similar path of what you're talking about. And it's that I think there's going to be uh, more parity this season in terms of the teams that we see at the top, the teams that start to make their ways into the playoffs or the teams that surprise everybody and blow by expectations because of that leap that you're talking about. So I agree with you. I think it's an exciting time to be an NBA fan. I think this will be one of the better seasons that we've seen just because there is going to be that changing of the guard, the differences between what a team was last year to this year based off of either just the growth of their players or the talent that they surrounded themselves with. So that's what I'm looking forward to most. Yeah, definitely. And it's also going to be nice to see some players um, that haven't been able to play because of injury eventually make their way back. Like, for example, it'll be nice to see Clay Thompson finally return and play with Stephen Curry and see if that can look like what the Warriors of old used to look like when that was their original final squad before Durant joined. So there's just a lot going on. I agree. So what do you think is your first hot take of the season? Um, I don't, I mean, now that you've already mentioned it, I don't think it's going to be that hot, but I think that the Lakers come to the trade deadline are going, there's going to be rumblings or at least rumors that Russ may get traded and I think it's going to be reminiscent of what you saw with LeBron's Cavs, his final season there, where you loaded up this team with a bunch of people who on paper seemed like they'd make the team really good, but it just didn't pan out. And so Rob Palenka is going to have to look to the trade market to gauge the level of interest in some of the 
vets that he brought on as well as potentially some of the talented rookies that maybe either aren't performing as well or are performing well, but they need to package them with a vet in order to get them either off the books or somebody else to retool the roster. So I think that's, that's my hottest take of the season is that is going to potentially happen for the Lakers. I guess on the flip side, the hot take that I have of a team doing really well is I think the Chicago Bulls are going to finish in the top three in the East. I think that what they did this off season and the type of team chemistry that they're going to have going into this season, I think is going to elevate Zach Levine's level of play in his contract year. I think Vucevic with his running with his uh, college teammate, DeMar DeRozan, it's going to elevate both of their games. And then I think Lonzo Ball now has three bona fide scorers to pass the ball to. So it's going to allow him to do what he does best, which is be the floor general. So I think that coupled with some of the role players that they have, like Alex Caruso, I see the Bulls as being a top three team in the East. Yeah, honestly, that's a really good take. I honestly probably would be inclined to believe that. I'm not going to go ahead and say that they're going to finish top three at this point because I still Well, that's why it's a hot take. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But um, no, I, I have to... I have to agree with you. It's possible. But I guess for me, um, my hot take would probably be that Kyrie Irving will be traded before the All-Star break. And the reason for that being, it seems like he's going to really hold firm on his vaccination stance. And given that the city of New York isn't likely to remove the vaccine mandate to practice and play at home, anytime soon, I don't think it's likely that the Nets are going to be willing to just have him sitting out pretty much half the games or all the games when they need production. They're clearly dedicating a lot of their um, team's assets and their monetary allotment to Kyrie Irving and to not be getting any production out of that is a real killer. So as good as he may be, um, and even though he was the one that was the first all-star of the three there um, to join the Nets. I really do think that they'll end up trading him to a team that potentially has no vaccine mandates so that he can at least play so and get something back for him. So let's see how it plays out. But um, I don't imagine Kyrie Irving finishing out with Brooklyn. I, I haven't looked into it. I don't know if you have, but what are the salary cap implications of having him on the team, but not with the team? Because he's going to forfeit or not be paid for the games that he can't play at home. So is that taken away from, like, could they go get somebody for $15 million right now and have it not count against the salary cap? Huh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if that would count against the hard cap, if they could actually use the money that they're not paying Kyrie to pay someone else. But I'm, I really don't think that they could do that because, you have to offer this other player a standard contract of some kind. So you're counting on Kyrie Irving essentially continuing to forfeit all of these games. What were to happen if, for example, he were to decide to get vaccinated and now he is eligible to play. So at that point, if he were to come to practice, now you'd be over the cap. So in a situation like that, I still probably think that they're going to use his contract against the, the hard cap total allotment. So, no, I really don't think that they could probably get another player. They could probably save out on paying him by withholding a salary, but they can't go and get another asset for it. Well, and that to me, as an ownership group with Joseph Tsai, 
uh, leading the charge there with Brooklyn. You're probably not just paying Kyrie the, I think, $50 million. You're also, if you consider whatever the luxury tax is for having those three on the roster, paying significantly more to have Kyrie Irving on your roster and you're getting zero production out of it. So, yeah, I mean, I the other part that I find interesting with that thing is, uh, you know, his stance is not that he doesn't believe in or like the vaccine, but just doesn't believe in the mandates or people losing their job. And you have people now protesting for Kyrie Irving outside of the Barclays Center for this exact reason. So it's uh, it's interesting to see, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, no, I'm honestly going to be surprised to see how this would work because it's hard to gauge right now what his value would be on the market. Obviously, he's a very talented player, probably the best ball handler of all time. And when he's playing well, um, he can do some things on the court that no one else can. But he also has proven time and time again to be a liability with showing up, whether it be for his health or whether it be for his mental. So as a team, how much are you willing to give up? And if you're the Nets, you've invested quite a lot in this asset. How much do you feel like you need to get back? So it'll be interesting to see. But um, speaking on the offseason, what do you think was the craziest thing that happened this offseason? I think thematically, the thing that was crazy about this offseason was seeing aging vets still getting paid a ridiculous sum of money. Uh, And particularly who comes to mind are the two former Toronto Raptors stars, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, both getting around three years, 90 million. I think it was a, a little bit under that for each of them. But at some point, you know that those returns are going to be, be diminishing on those assets. And in addition to that, they're probably not going to play all 82 games. So you're per game average for them based off of what likely will be either rest or injury um, is even higher for their services. So it was crazy to see. I know all will be forgiven if the Bulls or the Heat win a championship. It doesn't really matter. You could pay these guys probably $150 million for three seasons and nobody would bat an eye. But it was just interesting to see that playing out when what you described of like that changing of the guard occurring and seeing that younger talent come through and you know that that's coming to still give these guys three years, 90 million was uh, a bit wild to me. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's especially crazy when you think about um, what happened last playoffs. Um, You see a lot of teams that invested a lot of money and assets in veteran leadership and championship experience because they felt like that was the key to winning that goal. But if you look at the finals and the playoffs, the teams that made it to the end were not the most experienced teams. The Suns beat out a very experienced Lakers squad and the Bucks were another team that were led by Giannis, a guy who had never made it to the finals. So it's interesting that teams would still see that trend and still continue to invest in older players. But I think for me, the wildest thing about the offseason was the Russell Westbrook trade to the Lakers. I mean, you just had 
a team in the Suns that was younger, faster, and better at shooting than you. And then you go and you sign a player that is older and worse at shooting. And you just keep going in the other direction. I really don't see how this trade actually makes sense from a X's and O's standpoint. It just sounded like a big splash. It almost seems like Rob Palinka was like, I want to make a big splash. I need to get a big name. And he just got the biggest name that he could get without really considering how that piece was going to fit. And well, let's not kid anybody here. Rob Palinka was not saying I want a big splash. Russell Westbrook was at LeBron's house and LeBron called Rob and said, Rob, here's what you're doing. So I, I, I don't know why LeBron would want that. Like, I think it's a matter of time before they start yelling at each other on the court. They're oh, a thousand percent like not a good fit. Like, and I think that most people could probably realize that Russell Westbrook and LeBron probably aren't the two best people to put together yet they forced this trade. Like, I really think they would have been better off getting almost anyone else. Like not because Russell Westbrook is a bad player. Like he's obviously one of the best point guards ever, but he just doesn't really fit with what the Lakers need. You want to put Ben Simmons on that team. It's just not, that's not the type of player that needs to be on there. And what's funny is you kept talking about who the Suns got and two seasons ago, that point guard, Chris Paul, was traded for Russell Westbrook, and Houston was the one who had to give up more draft capital to get rid of Chris Paul to acquire Russell Westbrook, who was later then traded to the Wizards and then over to L.A., whereas Chris Paul was traded to the Suns and made it to the finals. So, yeah, it's – um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand what uh, – I, I kind of understand what was going through their head, but still, it, it's still uh, baffling nonetheless. Yeah, they made a lot of strange signings. But um, moving on to our way too early eye test, which team from the preseason to now has looked the most impressive to you? I mean, I don't want to uh, just come off as Miami Heat stands, but the Heat looked really good in the preseason. Um, Overall, I think they were undefeated. Uh, A lot of the younger players that they had playing that they ended up uh, bringing on, like Yurt7, have seemed to be playing really well. Tyler Hero or Daddy Hero now this season seems like he actually did uh, get some good offseason work in. uh, And I think last game led the team with 30 points. So uh, Tyler Hero looks good. After this offseason, Kyle Lowry, even though he's sitting out based off of last game, uh, looked good in the debut. Bam is looking dominant, as everybody was talking about during the preseason. So the Heat look really good. Um, I think the Sacramento Kings are an interesting young team to watch as well. You have a lot of young pieces there with Halliburton healed. Um Darren Fox and that whole team as a whole has looked really good. We'll see if they add a piece like uh, Ben Simmons for some of that young talent, as well as an aging Harrison Barnes. Um, So that was another team as well as what, who I mentioned the bulls. I think the bulls um, have looked really impressive to start the season. They looked a little impressive as well uh, during the preseason, but that's some of their 
impressive showing is why my hot take was what it was, because I think that on paper, they seem like they'll be performing well, but on the screen, they also are performing pretty well. Yeah, I agree. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head with almost all the teams that are really looking dominant. I know it's just the preseason. You can't make too much out of it, but there are some general trends that you can start to kind of see emerge that if um, changes aren't made are probably likely to be consistent. But um, I think one of the teams that you missed that's had a really good start and a surprisingly dominant start has been the Warriors. Clay Thompson isn't even back yet. And the Warriors are 3-0 and right now. And they won, I think, almost all of their preseason games. And it's just been behind dominant showing after dominant showing for Stephen Curry. It looks like he's going to have one of those years again where he's going to be in the conversation for MVP because he is just hitting ridiculous shots. Like, he's a cheat code. So um, the Warriors have been absolutely dominant and have been a really fun team to watch as well. And um, it's been interesting to see Kyle Lowry with Miami for sure. Um, I personally was not the biggest fan of Kyle Lowry, not to say that I thought he was a bad player or anything, but I definitely didn't think he was a 30 million per year type player. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm not really sure that I think he is right now. I still think it's kind of overpaying for him, but you can see now a little bit more the effect that he has that doesn't show up on the box score. He's not necessarily going to be a better scorer than a lot of other point guards in the league or um, have the best stats or lead the nightly assist totals, but he seems to always be making the right play and trying to get his teammates involved. So what you see on the plus minus and the effect that he has on other people's game is really important. And um, I think it's been really nice for the other Heat players to have him there because it takes the burden of having to create so much for Bam and Jimmy Butler, and it allows them to be more aggressive and look and attack the basket early on because they can count on Kyle to distribute the ball and get everyone in their sets instead of doing that themselves. So um, they've looked really good too. So conversely, what team from preseason to now do you feel has looked the worst? I mean, I hate to seem like I'm picking on the Lakers, but I mean, that's the easiest pick. I mean, they lost every game in the preseason, every single one. Well, they lost every game until yesterday. Exactly. They had lost, I think, what was it? A solid 12 games straight since their last win last season. So, I mean, they've looked pretty awful. And their win that they earned was a last-second win, and they needed 28 points from Carmelo Anthony off the bench. So, um, I mean, it just hasn't looked very good for them. Yeah, I it, what, what was the ridiculous Westbrook stat uh, that he had, like, double-digit turnovers, 17 turnovers, something crazy? Uh, let me see what it was. I forget what it was, but I know that LeBron told him to go home and take a night off and watch something funny and smile. But he was just trying to do too much, like always. Yeah, I mean, I guess... He had nine pre- turnovers. 
nine turnovers. Uh, all right, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Um, but yeah, that's still that's still not great. Nine turnovers in yesterday's game alone in their win. Yesterday's game. Yep. Jesus. Yeah, I, I do think. Go ahead. He's just trying to do too much. I think that it's it's really tough for him because he's not a good shooter and he thrives on scoring inside. But inside is always occupied by Davis. And LeBron's trying to get inside too. So it's really hard for him to get good looks right now. Yeah, I I agree. I, I could totally see Vogel running him with the second team and allowing LeBron and Anthony Davis and Westbrook to start, but then pulling Westbrook early, having LeBron and Anthony Davis pretty much finish the first, having Westbrook start the second and staggering them so that Westbrook is running with somebody more like Carmelo rather than with LeBron and AD. There's not really going to be much options for them. It seems like that's going to have to be something to consider. If not, they're going to have to look for a different roster fit. Well, Another thing is I do think this will be LeBron's best season of shooting and best season of shooting threes because I think he's going to take a page out of Kobe's book and continue to get more prolific from both mid-range and behind the arc. And I don't think he will be driving to the lane as much as he becomes more of the washed king, as he would call himself. So I do think LeBron is going to step into that phase of his career where he's more of a three-point shooter. Um, so that could benefit Westbrook and how he fits on the team. Well, he better hope so because we know that Westbrook at this point in his career probably isn't going to be developing a consistent three-point shot. So someone's going to have to space the floor. Yeah, I think uh, for me, the team that performed the worst during the preseason – and has also performed pretty poorly here to start the season was the New Orleans Pelicans. And I know that Zion's out right now, but there are reports that the team is very frustrated that he is over 300 pounds when they were trying to get him below 280. And they think that his injuries that are occurring are both being exacerbated and caused by his heavy weight and the force that he brings to all of his joints when he's coming down with that much weight. So that's a story to watch as a season unfolds is the conditioning of Zion Williamson, the conditioning of Zion Williamson and how that fits in with what the Pelicans want and the overall Pelicans performance, because they have a lot of young talent on that team. Brandon Ingram showed flashes of being a superstar last year. They got Devonte Graham, which is not a superstar, but he performed very well with the Hornets and now he's going to, more so have his not his own team but uh be in his own role on that pelicans team um and then obviously they have zion josh hart but i think that they could be sellers at the trade deadline to start to build out what uh presley built over in oklahoma city just given all the talent they have yeah i agree it is unfortunate to see this happening with zion because when he's on the court and healthy i mean you see the dominance and the potential to be a game-breaking talent and potentially an MVP-type talent. But for whatever reason, he can't seem to keep his weight in check. 
So you really hope that this doesn't turn out to be something that plagues him throughout his whole career and that he gets it under control because I agree with the team that has that much young talent. Um, if he misses significant time and isn't able to steady the ship by the trade deadline, I can definitely see them being sellers. Yeah. Well, we've talked about the performances of teams overall and a little bit about, well, pretty much just hammering Russell Westbrook on this podcast. But what, based off of what you've seen from the first two or three games, depending on the teams, what have you seen that has impressed you uh, from a performance standpoint? Who are some of the key performances? And let's, for now, exclude any of the new rookies, more so just existing talent or um, people who have been here. Well, for me, um, I thought one of the biggest performances through the opening games was the performance that Jalen Brown had on opening night. And I mean, it is coming in a loss, but he did have 46 points. I mean, the guy was ultra efficient on the night. And I think at this point, it's looking like he may be just as good as Jason Tatum is. I mean, 46 points, nine rebounds, six assists. We know that he's an elite defender. He probably is a better defender than Jason Tatum. I mean, you can't, you can't argue that Jason Tatum defends better. And he's ultra efficient from three-point range now. Eight threes out of 14 attempts. His plus minus was plus 16 on the game. And I think that this year we could see him take another leap and I know that's pretty crazy to think because he was already so good last year, but this year may be the year that he elevates and catches up to Jason Tatum and reaches his same playing field. So it'll be really interesting to see um, if they can coexist together, given that despite them having these two ultra talented players on the wing, it hasn't led to them being able to really advance deep in the playoffs or to actually um, win the Eastern Conference. So I think that this year will probably be a good year for the Celtics front office to evaluate. You have these two players that are both essentially reaching and going into their primes. If they can't really pull it out this year, is it because the pieces around them aren't good enough? Or is it because those two players just don't complement each other well? So it'll be interesting to see um, how the Celtics situation plays out this year for me. And like I said earlier, um, Kyle Lowry's effect, I think, was really impressive. It'll be interesting to see the ceiling for the Heat because there's a lot of teams in the East that I think from the beginning of the season you knew were going to be um, really big contenders, like, for example, the Bucks, the Nets. Um, these are teams that you expect to do very well. And the Heat, you obviously expected to do well also, but no one was really picking them to be a championship contender. So I think that when Oladipo comes back, how healthy Oladipo is, is what's going to pretty much establish the ceiling for this team and how good they can be. Because we already see how adding a player like Kyle Lowry, um, how that frees up all the other pieces that Miami has. So adding another dynamic player in Oladipo, it'll be interesting to see what that could do for unlocking their offense and defense. So I'm, I'm interested to see what the ceiling of that team is. Yeah, well, I'm going to continue to stand on my soapbox about the town that I just left. But Chicago Bulls, 
most impressive thing to me has been Zach Levine's performances the first two games. He had 32 the first game. I'm sorry, 34 the first game, 32 the second game. Coupled with uh, seven rebounds in the first, six rebounds in the second, four assists in the first, five, re- five assists in the second. So that stat line, I think, and we'll get into our award predictions next episode, but my sneak peek of that is Zach Levine to me is a uh, like underdog contender for the MVP. And I think that the pieces that they put around them, the hot take that I had of them potentially being the top three, we know that the MVP situation, I think you, you spelled out the formula last year was performance narrative and team positioning. And so his performance is clearly there. I think if he continues to improve on defense, then there'll be an argument, but really offense is what I think the committee and league cares about uh, team performance. If they do finish in the top three, that's something to consider as well. And the narrative of, Hey, this guy tore his ACL was pretty much written off left for dead traded from the Timberwolves to the bulls, not really expected to be a superstar was expected to be like, a star who basically came out of being a role player, but never really like launched himself into superstardom. And now he's leading a Bulls team into their highest seed since the last MVP of the Bulls was was there. So for me, his first two performances, I know he had, I think 14 points last game, but those two performances, if he continues to keep that up, gets the other numbers aside from his rebounds and assists up plays with a high PER overall for the season, um, I, I think he has a chance to be MVP. And that's who's impressed me the most to start the season. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's a really good take. Like, I'm really impressed by Zach Levine also. And I'm like someone who always used to roast Zach Levine for being an empty stats guy who just put up points but never won. I always used to laugh and tell everyone whenever I'd watch Zach Levine games, how during a close game in the fourth quarter, he'll always find a way to still lose the game, even if he has like 30 points that game. You always see games where it's like 35 points, Zach Levine, L. 40 points, Zach Levine, L. So I just always kind of rid him off as someone that was never going to be like a good distributor, never have really the IQ or the vision, just an ultra-talented guy who could score in in bunches but could never really fit within a team concept. So um, that's what I always viewed him as. And over the course of this year, I think that he will prove me wrong. I think that last year he really took a big leap and started looking a lot more like a leader. And I think that he just didn't really have the pieces last year. But you saw that, that flip of the switch mentally for him. He just looked different out there. Um, his decision-making, his confidence, he just looked way more sure of himself he looked like he had a deeper understanding of the game and I think that this year coupled with the new talent around him I think you're right that he will have all three metrics necessary to have an MVP season um, he just needs to be consistent but um, I think that all the play, all the pieces are there for him to have a massive year and assert himself as potentially a top 10 player in the league yeah speaking of uh Another performance that it, 
you expected it based off of the injuries that they had this offseason. But Paul George uh, is, I know it's very early. He's only played two games, but he's in the 40 or 50, 40, 100 club right now. He's shooting lights out. He's shooting and averaging 35 points per game. And you expected this to happen given Kawhi's injury and that leaving him to be the bona fide star on that Clippers team. But he's taking almost 12 threes a game. Um, I think this might be his most prolific shooting season and scoring season and just overall efficient season. Yeah, no, he's looked amazing. Um, And then I think the last person that I want to touch on, um, I don't know if he's going to be able to do this all year long, but if he does, then this will only further validate what I said at the beginning of the podcast, that this will be the year that a lot of players take a massive leap. But John Morant is actually leading the league in scoring right now through three games with Paul George. He's averaging 35 points per game right now with eight assists. He has a PER right now of a ridiculous 34.27%. He is currently shooting through three games, of course, 58% from the field, 44% from three, 81% from the free throw. And he's getting eight assists per game and 1.3 steals per game and 0.7 blocks per game. He right now is playing like an absolute superstar and is honestly making the Pelicans probably think to themselves, hey, no knock on Zion, but should we have maybe picked John Morant? Because he is looking like potentially a top three point guard in the NBA right now. Well, and historically, the number two overall pick has always panned out to be a dud. Not always, always, but... There are very few instances of the number two pick leaping in to superstardom like John Morant did or Kevin Durant did. Um, So, yeah, I I agree with you. And the impressive part, too, is him and Paul George both lead in the league in scoring. But John Morant is doing it on about half as many three-pointers and half as many attempts as well. So he's doing all this in the paint. He's doing all this with his electric dunks, as well as just cutting his way into the and and getting to the basket and from mid-range. So I think uh, it's impressive to have a point guard, somebody who's smaller, carving big men up in the paint like that. No, it's, it's honestly incredible. And the thing is, I mean, he is getting to the line seven times a game. He's getting seven attempts per game. But that means that he's still generating a massive amount of points just finishing in the paint because he's still averaging 35 a game to only get seven attempts per game and be scoring 35 a game is a huge accomplishment. And one of the biggest questions about John Morant has always been if he's going to be able to develop an outside shot that's consistent enough. Last season, he only took 3.8 attempts per game, which is not bad. And he knocked them down at a 30% rate, which isn't awful, but it's definitely not great by any metric. Teams will definitely play off of you um, when you're shooting that percentage because more often than not, you're going to miss it. But this season, he's averaging six attempts per game, and he's knocking down 2.7 of them per game. For 44%, I mean, if he can maintain that, that is elite three-point shooting. 
So hopefully um, he can maintain that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it'll be exciting to see. And uh, I, I want to see Zion on the court because I want to see some Zion and John Moran battles. I know that they're uh, former AAU buddies, but we'll, we'll see if Zion can get healthy. But talking about changing the guard, younger players, which newcomer do you feel has been the most electric or had the best performances thus far? Um, well, for one of, I mean, piggybacking off of what you said, I think for one of the biggest signings that was made in the off season, the contract that was given to Lonzo ball, I think was really underrated. And I think that he probably may have been even better value for the heat than Kyle Lowry would have been. They're paying Lonzo ball less money than Kyle Lowry. And he's honestly maybe producing just as much, if not better, for the Bulls. Um, he started out, already has a triple-double. He's averaging close to 10 assists per game already. And he's knocking down threes at a really high clip. He's doing everything that you want. He makes heads-up plays, plays great defense. He's looked great for them out there. And I think that he really is going to make life a lot easier for Zach Levine. He seems like a seamless fit on that team. And I'm honestly shocked that the Pelicans let him go. Um, he was a great fit for their young pieces too. So they didn't really believe in him. Um, and it's a shame because he's showing that he can definitely play. And I think that is really impressive too. Something to be said for him is his jump shots. He's looked incredible. His jump shot is redefined from his first year. He really did turn it around last season with the shooting. So it seems like he's just continuing off of what he already established last year, but he's one of the only players that has been able to change his jump shot so dramatically and actually have it consistently go down. So um, I think that he's looked the best of all newcomers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I actually took this a little bit differently with newcomers. I thought of the uh, like rookies to start the season and the person who has been so impressive to me and I also just love his swag is Jalen Green of the Houston Rockets I think that he's come out and said I should have gone number one Cade was not it I am the best out of this rookie class and again we were talking about number two picks and how sometimes they don't pan out and I his last game last night against the Celtics scoring 30 throwing down monstrous dunks over people and doing so rocking the old school short shorts. Uh, the kids, the kids dripping with uh, swag and is also just killing it in the league uh, this early. Um, I think the Rockets are still going to be a team that misses the playoffs because they are a very young team and they're probably going to trade Eric Gordon come the deadline and maybe Christian Wood depending on where they're at, just to get back some additional draft capital. But I think Houston has some uh, good players to look forward to their growth um, with, with what pieces they have on the team. So I think you have uh, Porter, you have uh, Kenyon Martin Jr., um, and I think some of the other guys that are out right now, like Tate, um, Houston's got a lot of good pieces to be happy about going into the next five to 10 years. Yeah, they do. They do got some good pieces to work with. And I think that you hit the nail on the head too with Christian Wood. 
um, as an early trade season prediction, um, I definitely think that he is going to be traded. He is a really solid player. He's very underrated. His contract is very manageable and he can help a lot of teams out. Um, I think that he's definitely going to be a trade chip before the deadline to some team and he'll probably end up making a pretty big difference wherever he goes. But um, yeah, I agree with what you said on Jalen Green. Um, he just had eight of 10 from three shooting yesterday for 30 points. They didn't win, that but set the Rockets record. Yeah, I mean, it's for incredible. Most threes. He is, yeah, most threes by a rookie. But um, no, he is, he is a really great player. And I would not be surprised if he's the one that ends up winning uh, rookie of the year when it's all said and done. Yeah, I mean, I if Cade Cunningham, he's apparently going to come back via the G League as like a rehab assignment, similar to what they do in baseball. But I, I think with Jalen Green's performance last night, if he has two or three more of those while also having decent performances in between, while Cade is still going through his rehab assignment and is not back yet, it's going to be very hard for – like Cade's going to have to catch up significantly or Jalen Green's going to have to be out for some reason. Like if he keeps stringing together performances like this, it's going to be too much for him to catch up similar to LaMelo ball. Even when he went out last year, he had played so well that Anthony Edwards couldn't catch up to win. Yep. I can see that. I think a dark horse to consider um, won't get too much into our, into our regular season award predictions just yet, but um Last thing on a rookie is Scotty Barnes, who had a really nice game against the Celtics recently and putting up 25 points. But he's a very, very unique player at the number four pick for the Raptors. I think that early on, he may be a little inconsistent and up and down. So it probably won't be enough to um, get him rookie of the year. But I think that by the second half of the year, we're going to start hearing his name in the rookie of the year conversation as he probably has, in my opinion, maybe the most upside of any player in the draft, just based on how unique his skill set is as a six foot nine forward who already is completely physically capable to play in the league right now and is already someone who is an above average NBA level defender as a rookie and can guard essentially all five positions at this point in the modern NBA. There aren't too many players that are going to be bigger than him um, or stronger than him that he has no chance to defend in the paint. And he has the length and requisite athleticism to shut people down on the perimeter. And I really do think that his potential is sky high, given that his leadership in always trying to make the right play, getting his teammates involved as a point forward who is really a point guard at six foot nine is what he tries to be. Um, I think that the upside is huge. If he can develop a jump shot, he's going to be a really big problem for a lot of teams. Yeah, I agree. Uh, another FSU player at number four could be a steal for their respective team. So we'll see uh, what Patty Pat and Scotty Scott do for each of their teams. All right, so Chris Paul becomes the first and only player to have 20,000 points and 10,000 assists. Does this move the needle on his all-time ranking for you? I mean, I already had him pretty high up there. I think he is on the Mount Rushmore of point guards, and I think that this just continues to 
move him more so in into that for others. I last season we talked about how when he's finished, he likely will finish third with LeBron then eclipsing him because I do expect LeBron to play longer than Chris Paul. But who knows? Because Chris Paul looks like he's like rewinding the clock uh, on father time as well. But yeah, Chris Paul, amazing career, continues to get better, continues to find new ways to improve. I think he has completely elevated Aiton and Booker's game as well as the others on the Suns, but particularly their, their two stars. And we'll see where he ends up finishing. And if he does play for another four or five seasons, he could get that to that like number two spot. But if even if he never wins a title, I would probably rank him, I would say top three. Uh, I would put still Magic Johnson and Stockton above him, but I would probably put Chris Paul as number three. I have to agree with you. I have him at the same place in my all-time rank. Um, I think that by the end of it, I'll probably have Curry ahead of him, though, just because, I mean, my personal preference, I think that what Curry does is probably more impressive than what Chris Paul does, and he also has all the rings on him. But for me, this does not really move the needle just because, not that it's not impressive that he's got 20,000 points, 10,000 assists, but I feel like we have this conversation every year about Chris Paul. Chris Paul, number two on the assist list. Chris Paul, number one on this list. Chris Paul is the first to do this, but it's always the same thing because we already know that statistically he's one of the best point guards ever. What he's missing is that ring to validate him and elevate him further. So if he doesn't win a championship, I don't really think no matter what else he does statistically, it's going to move the needle for me. Um, but going into that exact point, if he never wins a title, do you think that his rank of third all time that you just gave holds? I don't because of the person you just mentioned, Stephen Curry. And I mean, it depends on like where you end up putting Luca as a position towards the end of his career, because Luca pretty much plays like a point guard, even though I think he's listed as a shooting guard or small forward. So I could also see Luca, if we want to classify him correctly as a point guard, finishing above him. Hell, you could put LeBron James based off of some of his years playing as a point guard um, and depending on where he finishes, have him above Chris Paul. But I think in the traditional sense of point guard, uh, I similar to you see Stephen Curry finishing above him, unless Chris Paul does win a ring this year, or I mean, the window's definitely closing for him. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see that position of three holding for very long because of the fact that, Anybody who comes in with probably three or four rings and played the primary or secondary role on the teams getting those rings is going to eclipse him if they're the most elite shooter like Stephen Curry, or you have a guy who comes in and plays maybe similar to Stockton as just a complete distributor while also scoring a decent amount of points and is the floor general of a team that does make it all the way. So I think the reason why Stockton has held the number one or number two rank for so long is because of what he did passing the ball, averaging over, I think, 13 or 14 assists per season for four or five years. And 
is by far and away the best passer the league has ever seen, given his assist numbers and the fact that basically nobody can catch him. Um, but yeah, I, I would I think Chris Paul has to stay in the league as long as LeBron or as long as Tom Brady is staying in the NFL to get the assist record. And if that happens, then he would stay in the top three forever. But I think realistically he's not going to and you're going to have Stephen Curry as well as some young guys that we're probably not even thinking of take that from him eventually yep I agree with that but I'm um, moving on we have a new segment obviously as a podcast called court of opinion we would not be doing our name justice if we weren't using court themed gimmicks to make you all happy so our new segment arbitration we discuss a conflict between two parties. We let you There's know no gimmick the here. events. <laughs> There's no gimmick here. It's a real court. It's a real court, the court of opinion. So we discuss the events that happened. We explain the case for both sides, and we propose our just resolution. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. The first case, Kyrie Irving versus the Nets. All right, I will be defending my client here, uh, Kyrie Irving, while you represent the Nets. All right. All right, who, who would like to start? Go ahead, Kyrie Irving, state your grievances. Well, you see, as a player, we have a responsibility to not just the organization that we play for, but also to the people the organization represents. At the end of the day, you have blue collar workers and white collar workers that are paying their hard earned dollars to come see us at the Barclays Center and really seeing fans all over the world. And this goes beyond just basketball. This goes to all the AAU games. This goes to all the high school games. I mean, it's $5 to get into some high school games, $10, maybe $50, depending on what high school team is playing. And so you have to have those dollars in order to get into those games. And in order to have those dollars, you have to have a job. And there are too many people who are losing their job from these vaccine mandates to the point that I, as a player who probably could donate all that money to make sure those people get into those games, need to take a stand. And I don't not believe in the science behind the vaccine. I think the vaccine is a, a sound thing that many people should get. In fact, I've actually already got that. Okay, I can't say that I got vaccine. It's not, they didn't like me play. But I understand people who get the vaccine. So uh, I'm not taking it because I need to take a stand for the people who have lost their jobs and the people who will... Uh, continue to lose their jobs because of the, this vaccine mandate. And I understand that there are many workplaces and schools that require people to get the polio vaccine, the measles vaccine, and many other vaccines in order to attend school there or to go to work there. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the COVID vaccine. So I am, I am not taking it until uh, the rules soften for those blue collar and white collar workers who are losing their jobs. And until then, I will not tell them that I've already gotten the vaccine. I understand your side. Obviously, 
you aren't trying to say that the vaccine doesn't work or that you don't want to get vaccinated because you don't get the signs. Your issue is with the mandates. You don't think that the government should be making it a mandate or taking repercussions on people. That's all fine. But as an organization, we are paying you a lot of money, over $20 million worth of money, actually, to produce and play games. And unfortunately, as a team, we don't have a choice on the legislation that the city passes. There is a city rule that in order to practice with the team and play in the arena in Barclays Center, you have to be vaccinated. So you trying to take a stand is costing us a lot of money and continuity. We can't reasonably have you just play half the games and have you in the game plan for half the time. What's gonna happen during home games in the playoff? And we didn't sign you for 50% of the year. We were signing you under the expectation that you were going to be a major piece of the puzzle along with James Harden and Kevin Durant. And now the guys on the roster can't practice at their full capacity because there's this looming thing over the team that you've created because you want to draw attention to this stance. But as an organization about basketball, our goal is to win basketball games, and this is not really conducive to that. So unfortunately, your stance is costing us the ability to compete. So I think that honestly, the best resolution in a situation like this has got to be to trade him to a team that does not have a vaccine mandate. You definitely well, could hold find- Hold on, a- we're arbitrating, we're arbitrating. So let me <laughs> counter some of your points here. Uh, you know, you said 20 million, I actually make 34.9. Thank you, do not short me those 15. But uh, in addition to that, um, have you guys not been watching me the last couple of seasons? It's not like I play every single game. I play pretty much half the games anyways. So realistically, having me there, not having me there, it's pretty much where you're going to get anyways. So I don't really understand your guys' stance. Just let me suit up for the away games. I can show up as Uncle Drew for the home games because Uncle Drew has been vaccinated and we'll be, we'll be good to go. <laughs> as much as... Uh... That sounds really nice. I think that um, last year proved to everyone that without a full squad, we're not going to be able to win a championship. So I think we've had enough of the uh, Kyrie Irving show. We saw, like you said, that you're only willing to play half the games anyway, vaccine or not. So I think it's time that we uh, take advantage of the remaining window we have on Kevin Durant and James Harden, who are both players that are over 30 years old at this point and probably have three to four years left of prime play at best left. So uh, not trying to waste any more of those years on Kyrie Irving drama. So where do you think they trade him to? Honestly, this will be really interesting, but I could see it happening potentially to the 76ers because I think that would actually work out. They said they don't want him. I know they said they don't want him. But at this point, they have their own dumpster fire, which we'll get into as well. But, I mean, they're having a hard time trading Ben Simmons. The Nets are probably going to have a hard time finding equal value for Kyrie Irving. The, net, or the 76ers need shooting, ball handling. The, seven, the Nets need defense, rebounding. So if you look at it like that, it kind of does make sense on the surface that these two teams would trade 
one head case for another and see if at the very least, maybe a fresh start will get them straightened out. Well, a rumor that I also saw, maybe not even a rumor, but a hypothetical somebody threw out was involving the Heat as the third team to take Kyrie. Ben Simmons goes to the Nets and then Philadelphia gets Kyle Lowry because Kyle Lowry is from the city of brotherly love. And while Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry are friends and well-documented as good friends, Kyrie Irving and Jimmy Butler co-own their own underwear brand. And so clearly are friends as well. And as you know, Miami doesn't have a vaccine mandate, so Kyrie would be able to play down here. But we'll see uh, if any of that actually happens. It'll be interesting to see. You know that there's definitely going to be some dominoes that are going to fall. But getting into what we just alluded to at the end of that case, Ben Simmons versus the Sixers. And I'll be representing the organization. So, Ben, go for it. All right. I mean, as a player, I'm an ultra-talented guy. I've shown that I'm an all-star level player multiple years. I've made all defensive teams. I play great defense. I can defend one through five. I'm a great passer. I otherwise do most things on a basketball court at an above average level. I just can't shoot the ball. So I don't understand why you're hyper-focusing on this one weakness and then using me as a scapegoat in the playoffs for why we can't advance. I don't know why no one points the finger at Joel Embiid. I'm not a good shooter, but I do everything else really well. Giannis Antetokounmpo won a championship with the same exact formula. So is the problem really my shooting or that I'm not being surrounded by the right pieces? This team is always being built and catered to what Joel needs. This team never really caters to what my needs are. Looking back even to when they acquired Jimmy Butler, that was a player that doesn't really fit with my playing style. So I wasn't really considered in that. But regardless, I still show up and I play just to have my coach and my own teammates throw me under the bus in media sessions saying that I'm the reason why we can't win a championship. So if it's going to be like that, then I'm not going to play. They clearly don't want me there. Um, just not going to show up. And I don't really care that they say that they're going to find me because this isn't about the money. This is about respect. And at this point, I don't really think that the relationship can be salvaged. So until I'm traded, I'm not showing up. All right, Ben. Well, here's the thing. Um, we have done everything in our power to make sure that we're surrounding you with talent that suits your needs. Uh, Danny Green was brought over. Seth Curry was brought over. Uh, we got rid of the aforementioned Jimmy Butler because of the fact that we recognized that one, you didn't live up to his level of work ethic, but two, and more importantly, he couldn't shoot the ball like you need to have surrounding you. Um, you mentioned Giannis Antetokounmpo, and I, I'm glad you brought him up because after four seasons of playing, which is where you're at now, Ben, Giannis took the superstar leap and started averaging above 30% from three, and he was taking two attempts a game. He was averaging... Uh, just over 50% from the field and has continued to get better since. And also 
started shooting from instead of 23 points a game, went up to 27 points a game. And that was up from his rookie season where he was shooting seven points or scoring seven points a game, then 12 points a game, then 17 points a game. Whereas you, Ben, for some reason have been heading in the opposite direction, even though we surrounded you with talent that we better thought would suit your needs. So you went from scoring 16, you had a nice little increase to 17, and then it went down to about 16. And then last year you went down to 14 points per game. So you haven't really taken any three point shots since you've been in the league. I think you've taken maybe five in total since you've been in the league. Oh, okay. 34 since you've been in the league, um, which is about as many attempts as any player who's been in the league for like three games has taken. So right now, it's been four seasons since we've had you. It's kind of looking like a mistake. And so to us, the best comparison that we have for you is not Giannis Antetokounmpo, but another person we drafted expecting them to be a point forward and expecting them to do big things for this team. And that was Evan Turner. And we all know what happened to Evan Turner. So Ben, if you want to be like Evan Turner, we will ship you off to the Pacers. You can thrive over in Indiana. I'm sure that uh, you, you'll have a, a great sponsorship deal working out of Indianapolis. And, um, you know, we wish you the best over there. I think you and DeMontis Sabonis will have a, a great time together. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll find Indiana very peaceful, very relaxing, and hopefully you can clear your head and start to make some three-point shots for the Pacers. So I think at this point, it's pretty obvious that the resolution is to get this trade done. Um, I think that obviously there's the point of no return at this point. You're not going to really be able to salvage this relationship. But I think that what's really holding this thing back is the 76ers. Ben Simmons, really, there's nothing really more for him to do. Obviously, he's not helping his value as a trade asset by sitting out. But even if he did come back, I really don't think that it would significantly increase his trade value. I think that what's really holding this thing back is that the 76ers are overvaluing Ben Simmons. They think that he is worth like an all-star player and two first-round picks. And I really don't think that anyone in the league would agree with that. They have to stop looking at Ben Simmons like he's this potential MVP-level player all-star level guy and come to terms with the fact that they're not going to get three first round picks and an all-star for Ben Simmons. They got to let him go for something reasonable and stop doing this slow game so that they can integrate a new piece and actually have a whole season to get it worked out. And hopefully by the time the playoffs come around, this piece that they got back for Ben Simmons is something that can make a difference for them. But um, Ben Simmons is like the, personification of the housing market right now like he is a 1940s house that is like dilapidated and is crumbling and the person who's selling it is like well the the things that i have next to me make this house seem like it's worth six hundred thousand dollars even though you need to demolish it and rebuild it completely from the ground up um Anybody willing to pay this? No? All right, I'll take $5.95. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, 
they really are like looking at him like they're going to get like a James Harden return for this guy or something like that. Maybe um, at the trade deadline last year, but they just sat on their hands for too long. Yeah, because now everyone knows what his weaknesses are. He's been exposed, essentially. So he's, he's damaged goods. I think that really the best case scenario in this would be if they were to trade Ben Simmons to Portland. I really do think that that's the best fit. I mean, the Nets obviously could work out, too, for the reasons I mentioned earlier in the last case. But I think that another really good trade for Ben Simmons would be Portland because going to Portland for CJ McCollum, a package based out of that would really work for both sides. But ben they Simmons, won Dame. I mean, they're not going to get Dame. <laughs> no one's going to get Dame. They want Dame and CJ McCollum <laughs> for Ben Simmons and uh, Firkin Cormaz. Yeah, they're, they're ridiculous what their asking price is. And four they, pick swaps. Yeah, they're ridiculous. Honestly, they're not going to get that. They're going to have to let him go for something more reasonable. And I think the most reasonable, realistic trade for them is CJ McCollum. And if they get CJ, I think that would be great, actually, for their team. Like, his skill set is exactly what they're missing. They need a guy who is going to be someone who can create for himself off the dribble while also creating for others as a secondary ball handler, maybe even a primary ball handler, and someone that can consistently score from all three levels. They need that. And the 76ers probably trading Ben Simmons to Portland would help Portland out with their rebounding and defensive issues, which always seem to be their biggest issue. Um, and they probably could use that alongside Damian Lillard instead of having a repetitive mix of Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, which over the years, although they've been a very nice backcourt has already, I think shown everyone what the ceiling is with that. Like they're not going to realistically win a championship with that backcourt. So even though you may be, willing to argue that CJ McCollum is a better player. Why would Portland do this? They do it because maybe it unlocks a new level for that team. Maybe they can finally, with the leadership of Damian Lillard, get Ben Simmons in a position where he's surrounded by pieces, where he can thrive. So maybe it works because you know that what you have right now isn't going to be enough. So hopefully um, a resolution is made for both sides. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, it's unfortunate and you hope that he figures it out. But I mean, he's, I, I don't think him coming back to play, whatever his level of play is, is going to elevate him or elevate his status. I more so think him coming back to play will show teams that he's like willing to overcome adversity and willing to overcome being like, ripped on by his coach or ripped on by his teammates to come out and perform like yes every player is entitled to their own opinion and whatever their like emotional or, or physical feelings are but like I personally think Rich Paul has been toxic for Ben Simmons because Rich Paul I think treats all of his players the same way that he strong-armed teams for LeBron and Ben Simmons is not LeBron and many players that Rich Paul represents are not LeBron, but Rich Paul got his intro into being an NBA agent by having the best player in the league. And so trying to do these holdouts and then saying, Oh, I have back tightness, but then clearing the air with the team and saying, actually, it's just because I'm not mentally ready to play. Like it's all little mind games and all little strong arm manipulation techniques 
that I think Rich Paul has a responsibility of like doing for Ben Simmons. And I think he's doing it because he's treating him like LeBron and Ben Simmons is not LeBron. Neither are many of the players that Rich Paul represents. I think Nerlens Noel um, was a player who dropped Rich Paul after um, not getting an appropriate contract because he felt that Rich Paul wasn't serving his best interests. And then after he switched to a new agent and played well for the Knicks, then he got a, another contract. And I think he was told by Rich Paul not to accept a certain deal because he expected to get more. And it's like, you can't, you can't treat all these players the same. They're clearly not in terms of their skill set, their playing ability, or what they command from teams. There are levels to this, and definitely he has to recalibrate what he thinks the value of some of his assets are. But moving on to our next case, Anthony Davis versus Dwight Howard. They get into it on the court, make a big drama for everyone to see, fun stuff. I guess I'll represent Anthony Davis and you'll represent Dwight. All right. So, all right. So not going to lie, Dwight, you're really not doing your part out there. You're not rotating on your assignments. I don't like to play the center position myself and you're blowing your rotations and I'm having to go cover for you. And we're giving up easy baskets. We haven't won a game in 11 games. We finally just got our first win. Honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with you. You're giving up easy points in the paint. You can't rotate outside. Why do we even pay you? Well, Anthony, you didn't pay me last year. And it seems like you guys didn't win a championship last year. You know who wasn't here last year when you didn't win a championship? This guy. You know a position you had a ton of issues with last year? The center position. So you guys sent out that dude who you thought was going to be the answer, also AD, over to Philadelphia. And we'll see how that pans out. But you didn't want to keep DH. And you know what? DH showed up every night. And let's, let's talk about DH a little bit. Uh, Anthony, when was the last time you – oh, that's right. You've never played 82 games in a season. You know that I have. And I – Overall, seem to be pretty durable in my career. But it seems like every time we get to the playoffs, the same old story. Oh, Anthony Davis injured. Oh, Anthony Davis made a glass. You know what, Anthony? You tell me that I'm missing my assignments. At least I'm here for my assignments. They don't call me Superman for nothing. What are you, Ant-Man? Superman versus Ant-Man? Come on, I'm going to win every time. So just sit on the bench. If you don't want to play the center position, I will take up all the minutes. I will continue to be Superman on the court and uh, come playoffs. Maybe you'll be rested and recuperated enough that we'll be able to make a deep run of it. And again, win as champions, when Dwight is on the team and Anthony is, you know, injured. Yeah, honestly, this one was just weird and awkward for this to be happening so early in the year. I had predicted that the Lakers were going to have drama like this with infighting but I didn't expect it to happen this fast and I didn't really expect it to happen between Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard first I really thought it was going to be Russell Westbrook and LeBron but I think that the solution to this is to stagger their minutes I think that 
Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard just aren't a good fit together um, on the court. I think that Anthony Davis needs to sack up and just play the center position. He has to go into the paint and play the center position for his team to have the best spacing that it can. They already don't have good shooting on the perimeter with Russell Westbrook on the outside. You have LeBron James as your best three-point shooter, essentially, which, I mean, not to say that he's terrible, but he's not like an elite three-point shooter. So I think that they need to get a stretch four type player in the lineup because when Dwight goes in there and they have both Dwight and Anthony Davis together, there's just a log jam in the paint and teams tend to play with more perimeter players now. So it is kind of a tough assignment to ask Dwight to rotate onto perimeter players. Um, so I think that he's just better suited rotating those two players, not having them share the court at the same time. What I don't understand with Anthony Davis though, is we're in an era of basketball where it's pretty much positionless. Like there are not many players who you can say play one position and that's it. And especially with the center position and the fact that there are stretch four and stretch fives on the court at like most of the time, there are very few centers where I go like, yeah, that's, that's a center. That's not a power forward. That's a center. And for me, that's like Valanchunas, Steven Adams, Clint Capella. Uh, and that's about it. I wouldn't classify Embiid as a center because he can space the floor. He could play as a stretch four if needed, depending on who uh, was at the five position or who they put in there to run the floor with him. Um, but aside from that, I really don't see anybody who is a starting five as a true center. And so I don't know. And on top of that, he came out of Kentucky as one of, if not the best shot blockers in the game. And he's tall. He's got a massive wingspan. So like, do you just not like getting bodied the whole game? He's still only 28 or 29 years old. He still has got young, fresh legs under him. So he shouldn't feel like, uh, I don't want to get bodied every game. So I just don't understand his gripe or concern with being the quote unquote center because it's a positionless era of basketball. And realistically, he is the best defender on the floor on paper whenever he's on the floor. So I, of course, you're going to be guarding guys on the inside. You're not going to put Rondo or Russell Westbrook on a 6'10 dude in the paint like this that doesn't make sense so i i don't get it yeah i think that he just doesn't like contact remember that anthony davis is a guy that when he started playing basketball was a guard he had a really really late growth spurt and randomly ballooned into a center sized player with guard skills because he started out playing as a guard so i think that since he started out playing as a guard he never really um, grew up accustomed to playing with constant contact. So I think he doesn't like contact for that reason. He's already a player that has durability issues. He gets hurt a, every year. I mean, he's you like... You have a guy like Kevin Durant who weighs less than him and is lengthier than him. You have a guy like Kevin Garnett who weighed less than him and is lengthier than him. And like maybe they didn't have that ridiculous growth spurt when they were in high school and college, but 
these guys are still tall, slim, and lanky. And Kevin Durant has shown the last couple of seasons that that's where he's taken his leap is in the defensive category. And Kevin Garnett was always known for just being the person who was under other skins and always like not even letting a shot go in whenever he was on the bench, if somebody was shooting from the three point line and the whistle had blown. So like that, I just, I don't get, I don't, even if you're a guard, you're still going to have to deal with contact. We talked about John Morant earlier. He's getting contact and going to the line for seven free throws a game because he's driving into the paint and getting smacked and hit and just beat up in the paint. So like, regardless of your position, basketball is a contact sport. Like if you didn't want to get contact, then go play a sport that doesn't require contact like golf or tennis um, or swimming like those, I, I think LeBron has said that in the past to like his son's teams. So to have a guy who plays a game that is known for contact and to play a position, regardless of the position, you're going to get contact. I just don't, I don't understand it. I think it's just a little different. Like Anthony Davis, I mean, would argue that it's supposed to be a non-contact sport by rule, even though obviously there's contact. The thing is, Anthony Davis, unlike Kevin Durant, like you're not going to ask Kevin Durant to defend post-ups on Joel Embiid primarily. He may have to do it on a switch, but Kevin Durant, for the most part in his career, has always played with someone that was going to be tasked with defending the guy who's going to be the bruiser. And also Kevin Durant traditionally always lined up as a small forward or power forward as they're listing. Anthony Davis, on the other hand, is always being asked to defend the guy who's the bruiser, the Joel Embiid, the big guy, the heavy guy. And he just doesn't like contact. He's soft. He, I mean, the guy breaks every year. So he's probably thinking to himself, like, I already know that I'm not very durable. So me. But he played with DeMarcus Cousins. He played with Dwight Howard. He got Andre Drummond and Marc Gasol. Like, he's still, like, they're, they're giving him centers to play with him. I, I just, what, what does he need? What, what person does he need that fits the bill for him to absorb every single bit of contact for perpetuity on the Lakers? I guess he needs Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid or something like that. But yeah, no, there's not really much of a case to be made for him, honestly. He's just got to sack up and play defense. But that was Court of Opinion. Episode one, we hope that you liked the new segment. Uh, We have a lot to cover on the next episode. A lot of exciting new things this season. Definitely make sure to follow us on Twitter and our other forms of social media. We have a new site that's out for the podcast. So be sure to check that out. For Court of Opinion, I'm Mike Stir. I'm Eric Gonzalez. Court is adjourned.